Howdy, this is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. This is a Currents episode. Currents are shorter and less heavily produced than our full-length episodes and generally focus on a single topic. As always, links to books, articles, and organizations mentioned are available on the episode page at jimrutshow.com. That's jimrutshow.com. Today's guest is Monica Anderson. She is CTO at Sentience, Inc. And like very few other people around, she has over 20 years of hand-on experience with deep neural nets and related technologies. And I love this. She styles herself an experimental epistemologist. What a great concept. You know, as regular listeners to the show know, I'll often say, when I hear the word metaphysics, I reach for my pistol. And all I need is a real world and some epistemology. So I like the combination of experimental epistemologist. And as she says in her, her own bio online, there ain't, aren't too many of those running around. You can see more of what Monica's up to at her website at experimental-epistemology.ai. That's quite a mouthful and quite a bunch to type down. But as usual, the link will be on our episode page at jimrutshow.com. So check it out. Welcome, Monica. Hello, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It sounds like a challenge and should be fun. Yeah, I think it should be indeed. Today, we're going to mostly talk about her recent paper she published back in what, October 2022 called Bubble City, Design Proposal for a Twitter Alternative, which is not a social media. It is a real-time idea router. And that kind of explains it at the highest level. And, you know, as I talked to told Monica in the pre-show chat, I'm seeing a lot of this around, this idea that we now finally have the tools and the technology to, in some sense, let content route itself. And this falls very strongly into that, into that category of system ideas. So maybe, Monica, if you'll come back here, we can get started. <laughs> sure. So uh, I have had many decades of social media experience and message systems as such. I worked for a chat company and wrote a chat client for the Macintosh, among other things. And I like real-time information systems because there's a lot more you can do in the real-time system than something that takes longer, like email. And how could we extend the idea of information management from being just like something like web search to being a real-time thing. And the way I envision doing that is to create a system which I call Bubble City. And that system has, the system is built on the principle that everything is done by pull. You have to request all the information that you want to use, that you want to hear. So that's basically, you can say that one of the principles of Bubble City is that if you will claim the right to say whatever you want, then I will claim a right not to have to hear it. And so you're creating a system where you are, with very simple means, very little effort, can create something we can call an information bubble. And this is a technically implemented as a filter for messages, and it's a very solid filter. And you can sort, uh, filter the message by topic because it is supported by an artificial intelligence of some kind, we will say. There's multiple levels of this. Back in 2007, I was working for Google and I had this uh, an idea for something like Public City as a something I wanted to do as a 20% project at Google. And I did that. And afterwards, Google wanted me to patent some of the things that I had come up with, and so I did. And so parts of Bubble City were patented by Google in 2007. I don't think that's going to be a problem, mainly because I used the Google search engine in reverse as the core of the filtering. And today, we have at least two other solutions. We can use systems like ChatGPT's APIs at the GPT level to do the filtering for us or some other future AI uh, that's going to be cost-effective. And I have my own entry into this battle. 
Okay, I got one. I want to kind of get this more tangible so people can get a, a feel for it. You know, you describe it as a Twitter alternative, and so I think a lot of our listeners know what Twitter is. There's vast sums, hundreds of millions a day of tweets being entered into the system, and we follow them by following people typically, right? As I understand it, in Bubble City, instead of following people, we would create or subscribe to existing bubbles that are defined topically, and they could be defined in as fine-grained a fashion as one wants, and essentially messages that fit the filter or the membrane pass-through rules for the bubble enter into the bubble, and you then see them. And you can then, as the user of the bubble, add additional filters for what you want to see and how perhaps maybe you could order them. Is that approximately correct? This is exactly correct, right on. And we maybe if I wanted to, maybe if I should put a very concrete use case to use as an example of what where this could be useful. Consider that you are maybe are a living in New York and you want to go to a conference in Boston and you're looking for or looking for opportunities to carpool to the conference. So you type in the name of the conference and the carpool, and suddenly you're in the chat room where people are talking about carpooling to the conference. And some of the messages may be a few days old, some of them may be recent, and if you type something, the number of people who are in the same bubble, because they enter the same search stream, if you will, can immediately see your messages. So we have created a virtual ephemeral chat room that's based on the topics of messages, which is handled and maintained by the artificial intelligence. And this AI is very good at classifying stuff. So if it notices somebody is trying to sell sunglasses to the people going to the conference, the AIs will notice that this is an attempt to sell stuff and we're not going to let that message in, even though they're talking about the conference. And so this is a way basically to quench the social media flood of information that we have, which is often a very low grade. And we can, as professionals, for instance, we can go in and research only our specialty, we can create a chat room, for instance, of all researchers that are using a system that are interested in small cell lung cancer, and you can basically exchange information in real time. So the difference is it's not a social medium. You don't follow people, because on social media, people are generally used as a proxy for content, because we didn't know how to analyze the content. Now we have the ability to do so. And so let's have our computers, our AIs, fully understand the content and only send the messages to the people who want to hear them. So in this system, in Double City, you can type whatever you want with illegal limits of separate conversation. And only the people who want to see those messages will see them. Now, there has to be a two-level structure, which is that you use the messages at in AI, AI filtered messages to decide where to go. But once you're in one of those chat rooms, your protection against spam and advertising and other things like hate goes down, and you may have to do additional filtering to get rid of that. But then those are some of the aspects of the system that make it radically different from what you see today in social media. Okay. Now, you several times have talked about real time and what sounds like synchronous usage. Now, if we look at something like Twitter, only a very few people use Twitter in a synchronous fashion. Most of us use it asynchronously. We check in once or twice a day, do our do, etc. And, you know, the realities of life being what they are, synchronous communications is really hard to make work for large groups of people, while asynchronous is a, an easy way to make things scale. So when you say synchronous or real time, are we sure that's what you really mean? Well, it is real-time with a log. So everybody who joins the bubble will see messages going back potentially months that other people have written. So there is context going back. It is a very rarely discussed topic. You might basically open a window to it and set an alert and nothing happens for months and then somebody speaks to you. So there is definitely both aspects of it. I mean, it's the real-time is important and I'm I'm making it as much real time as I can. It turns out that the AI is going to take some time to understand the messages, but it's going to be a few seconds. And that will get better over time. But the real time aspect is important because in one way to think about this is that it is a professional's brainstorming machine. 
where professionals in, with a hard problem to solve can go get together anywhere on the planet and converse with each other potentially in real time and solve these problems. And as AIs get stronger, we're going to introduce those AIs into this conversation. First by individual users saying that I want my personal AI to be part of this, or later by somebody saying we're going to have an AI for this bubble or something like that. Yeah, one could one thing I've talked about for years is it would be great to have a librarian bot available, right? So if there's a research question, you could pose it to the bot and say, "Bot, go research this. See what see what else is known about this conjecture." And now that we have things like ChatGPT and the next generation systems of this kind, we can see how this is going to be implemented. You have your librarian; it's going to be a subset of many other things that this bot's going to do. Okay, indeed. Now. So I sp- in, in some sense, this sounds a little bit like a worldwide Slack system, right? Where a, could a bubble be thought to be analogous to a Slack channel? Yes, but it has significant advantages. And one of these is the concept of addressability. If you're a user in a system and you have a handle such as a Twitter handle or, or a name in Slack, people can post stuff to you and you would have to explicitly ban them or quench them or whatever, silence them. To avoid that. But if you're a user that nobody can send messages to, you don't have this problem. Ah, yeah, good distinction. So bubbles are only content routing. So bubbles attract content that meet the profile of that bubble. For instance, let's say let's say you're a sports fan and are interested in Manchester United, for instance. Perfect example. And you set one up for Manchester United and you might actually further tune it that says, all right, I only want game summaries and trades of players and nothing else. No no gossip about the players' girlfriends or anything else. And you define that as the uh, hardcore sports Manchester United bubble, and only things that meet that criteria enter the bubble. Is that about correct? That is a perfect example. It matches my example of typing in World Cup and seeing what's going on in the World Cup in whatever sport that is. Yeah, and of course, importantly, as I was reading the paper, I said, you know, some people are better than others at kind of understanding tools, online tools, and so bubbles may be something that we'd want a bunch of them floating around that people could subscribe to, pre-existing bubbles, or they could inherit bubbles and modify them. I think I could see that as being something that would help accelerate the adoption of something like this, because probably most people would find creating a, a bubble from scratch to be either over their head or more work than they'd like to do. Well, you can do a web search today, and it is the same effort. You just type in a topic, and now you have a bubble for it. And by the way, if you click on somebody else's message, you are inheriting the bubble of that message and so on. And you can always fine-tune whatever bubble you're in. You can always fine-tune it. And, if you, and then the system, when you close the window, the system will ask you, would you like to save this bubble in your playlist? And you can do that. Ah, yeah, that's, that would be good. And, with, and so searching, so let's say I search for Manchester United. I yeah. might find some pre-existing bubbles, right? Yes. That I could join. Or if I don't, I could hit create a new bubble that starts out as just a blank Manchester United search, and then I could tune it from there. Yeah. If you want to be highly technical about this, uh, it can't be seen just as implementation detail, but bubbles will uh, contain other bubbles. And for legal reasons, we may be forced in many jurisdictions to have an outermost bubble that says you cannot post about these topics. And this, of course, is implemented with an AI that perfectly understands what these things are about. So it's going to be 100% reliable. We will not post about these topics. And so that bubble is like an external legal bubble, if you will. Then inside of that bubble, we can build a safe bubble that avoids things like spam and hate and, and, and racism and all other stuff that we want, all the stuff we don't want to see. And people can just say, I would like to subscribe to the standard a safe bubble. So now they have two bubbles already. And so after that, everything they create is going to be inside of those bubbles. Now, if you are, for instance, curious about unsafe stuff, so to speak, if you're going here for, for instance, for porn or something like that, then you can unsubscribe to the safe bubble and just go directly to the legal one. And if you're a law enforcement officer and you validated as such, you may be able to basically see what is the legal bubble so filtering out. So in spite of having a system where you can say whatever you want, which means that you can do things like 
look for, I don't know, credit card fraud or murder contracts or drug deals online, you can be sure that the law enforcement will be in those same bubbles. You don't know who's in the bubble you're in because all it takes is for somebody to create something that intercepts messages that the bubble is about. Now, this actually may or may not solve a famously difficult question about the web, which is legal jurisdictions, particularly about speech, very radically, right? In countries like the United States, you can say almost anything. There's a small category what you can't say, but it's pretty small. In countries like Canada, there's quite a bit more stuff you can't say. In countries like Germany, there's even more stuff you can't say. In countries like Iran, there's a long list of things you can't legally say. So let's take our Manchester United example again. Is this embedded in in a specific legal bubble or is somehow can we magically have the legal bubble post-filter my Manchester United bubble so that it's legal in my jurisdiction, but in a place like the United States, other let's say I'm in Iran, only the Iran legal stuff comes out. In the United States, U.S. legal stuff comes out. Yeah, this is, this is at the level of implementation, which is uninteresting to me at this point, but it can clearly be done, and it can be clearly enforced with an iron fist by artificial intelligence to understand exactly not only what the message is about, but your intent with the message. And so if you want to sow like a, a disagreement or strife in a, in, a, in a meeting and people have said, I don't want any strife in here, right? be a non-strife, non-argumentative battle bubble or something people can subscribe to, you basically you will get a much cleaner feel and it's up to you to specify everything. I mean, it's, except for the legal limit, everything is in the control of the end user. Everything, everything about which messages they see. So it's at that level, the bubble is personal. So it may start out as a, it's, a, it's an attractor. So it attracts right. things that match the content domain. And then, you, and then you add other filters to filter out what you don't want to see. Now, 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 from a practical perspective, let's imagine we start out with the Manchester United bubble and there's threaded conversation going on, as there often is in these things. If one has a different filter than other people, one might see those threads kind of be somewhat incoherent in that some messages would come through and others would not. Yes, and there is a couple of remedies for that. I mean, people have to get used to this because that's what a lot of the conversation is going to be. As you can individually basically filter out any opinion, you're going to have a more fractured conversation. Once you're, however, once you're in the thread mode, you're looking at the real life thread and everything is visible. So at this point, you can add, like you, like you just suggested, you can use these bubbles as filters after the fact. By basically, if you're seeing a message you don't want to see in a thread view, you swipe left on it if the finger is available. And if the finger is not available, you can click on a mouse button. And that will basically deprecate that message and you will not see any messages like that in the future. In fact, every time you swipe left, they turn gray, and there's going to be collateral damage to other messages that also turn gray that you also didn't want to see. You hit the refresh button, and they go away. Conversely, if there's something you really like, you can expand your bubble by right-swiping on the sentence or a message, and more messages concerning that topic will appear in that bubble. So we have what we call swipe tuning, which is a fine-tuning that you can use anywhere in the system, and whatever bubble you're currently looking at is modified to accommodate that swipe tuning, and it will be safe in your playlist if that's where it came from. Interesting. Now, I know we're not going to, don't want to get down to implementation details, but I'm going to give you an example of how a really old online system does this. It's called the Well. It's one of the oldest online systems in existence. It started in 1985. Probably 20% of the users are still using the command line version, believe it or not. And it has a very rudimentary filter called the Bozo filter. Sometimes conversations get very contentious on the well, and some people like contentious conversations and some don't. And so people will bozo filter somebody in a given conference, which is kind of a co- equivalent of a forum, a collection of topics. And I think it's actually a pretty nice implementation, even though it was a very ad hoc decision made based around the affordances of the software. It basically still has the post in it, and it says bozo filtered and gives the time and the date and I think the author. And it's not that hard to then retrieve the 
the note if you wanted to read it. So it might be interesting to have soft filters like that that push the you you keep the context there. You know the order of posts, but you don't have to look at the post from somebody that you know you don't like or or that has hate speech in it or something like that. But if you actually want to, you want to take the next volitional step, you can do so. It's actually a kind of a a simple but elegant solution to the problem of decoherence around filtering out things in otherwise conversations that have a an inherent sequencing to them. I was briefly on the well, so I know what it's like. And I have to say that many of the ideas that go into this are not my own. They basically gather from all over the, the, the universe of, of social media and email and stuff. So there is, however, one interesting thing you can do in Double City. Uh, after you have basically, you're in a bubble and you slide to it, and it starts getting thin and you don't know what's going on. What you do is you can flip on the flag that shows you everything that the filter has removed. And you can go in there and click, oh, this shouldn't have been removed. This looks interesting. You just click on it or right swipe it. And suddenly your filter starts including those messages that you didn't, that were previously removed, possibly by accident. And that's kind of like going. That's kind of like going through your spam directory and exactly. Gmail every once in a while. Though I got to say, Gmail spam filters getting so damn good, I hardly ever do that anymore. But a system like this is probably going to be a little bit less precise initially, and it would make sense to be able to review what's been extracted and say, "Oh, sorry, that's not what I wanted." Or, of course, in the future, we could have our own personal bot do that for us. Well, you have. I mean. Google is at the forefront with message understanding, I mean, web page understanding and everything. So that stands the reason that they would use whatever AI they have to create a very good spam filter. And also they have the volume. They have the volume. They can see if the message goes out to 100,000 people, they can start start thinking about whether that might be spam. So they have that leverage. Okay, uh, another question for you. As you, you say in your paper, there's no like button and dislike button and that's pro- publicly viewable as kind of an editorial comment, but instead you have a personal more like this, fewer like this. Now, right. is that information about more like this, fewer like this used behind the scenes as an algorithm for helping to route and rate content? Only in one place, and that is that we create a special pseudo-bubble, if you will, called popular. And here we are looking at what people think is popular, and this is where the more like this information goes in. But the point of more like this and and fewer like this is that they are not going back to the author. The author cannot benefit from you liking or disliking them. The only satisfaction they get is that people respond to their messages and that they have a reach count, which tells you how many people have seen it. And that's, uh, that's basically all you get as a user. I would suggest in addition, in addition to the popular bubble, you also also have one called shithole for the stuff that, <laughs> that has the highest negatives. I'd like to see that, at least occasionally. See what people hate. That might actually be more interesting than popular. I mean, Reddit has a popular thing, and it's usually yes. boring, boring as shit, right? <laughs> you know, idiot public, you know, celebrities and crapola like that, right? Well, we could have one which is uh, we could have one which is basically messages favored by uh, your personal AI, and out of the whole set, and and vice versa. If you want to have a, a we need a better marketing term. Yeah, yeah. No, I think shithole is perfect. Uh, actually, but <laughs> now the other thing though is you you I know you're working hard here to depersonalize the filtering. However, I would say in my own experience. The imprimatur that comes from certain people is valuable, right? Though, and this is kind of an interesting thing, I've used this example before, I can think of a particular person whose views on social systems on networks are really, really good, but their opinions about literary fiction totally suck, right? So (laughs) it'd be kind of nice to be able to, in some sense, have a two-part filter, which says, you know, person X, all right, give them... They bump them up in status, but if it's about literary fiction, don't let it in. Well, if you've just been creating a, a, a bubble with that person as a component, I mean, their their identity as, a, as part of the filter, which is how you follow people, and then adding to it the social context, we'll give you exactly that because none of the other stuff will make it into that bubble. You don't have to exclude anything. It's exclusive by default. 
Yeah, but okay, now let's take another step. Look, imagine I have a community of people I follow on a topic and I want to build a bubble with 20 people, but I want yeah. to filter specifically some of them on specific categories, but not others. Can I do that? You would be an advanced user and you would have to use nested bubbles. That's my opinion at this point, but we can make the... We have four levels of, um, I mean, I, this is in the next version of the paper. We have four levels of users. At the last level is called analysts. And the analyst level may have stronger user interface. And they, if this is implied, this is aimed at, for instance, stock market analysts or, or law enforcement and emergency services and so on. I got another possible use case for you. As I was reading sure. the paper, it struck me that there was an ecological niche for curators to create good bubbles because creating a good bubble could be a lot of work in maintaining it. And so Jim decides he's going to curate the bubble about complexity science, let's say. And I, you know, sit there and tweak it very carefully and add sources to it, put filters to reject bad stuff, etc. And then I might want to I'd love to be able to license people to have access to my bubble. They can pay me a dollar a month to have access to my bubble. They're not, the, the money doesn't go, because you make a good point about not wanting the flow of funds to go back to the content originators because uh, it provides some perverse incentives on certain kinds of behavior. But perhaps there ought to be an ecological niche for paid curators to build and take care of bubbles. It's possible. I have. The, the, what happens is that Certainly, agencies such as law enforcement and, and others that are using these systems professionally to track find larger movements, they will have very carefully crafted bubbles. But most of the bubbles that people will use in the system are kind of close to ephemeral because things come and go, their interests wax and wane. And so you typically have a playlist of maybe, I don't know, 50, 100 bubbles, something like that, and you don't really care about the last 60 of them because they were something you did early, earlier. And if you somebody posted one of them, you can view it and say, nah, this is getting stale. I'm just killing the bubble. And so you pop the bubble and it goes away. Yeah, at least within your, within your own space. But I guess my point is that there are domains which are relatively well-defined, let's say in the sciences. And you know, in the early days of Twitter, there were people who spent a lot of time reading papers and retweeting the ones they liked. You don't see so much of that anymore. But if there were an a ecological niche to get paid to do yeah. that, this might be a very good set of tools for doing that. Well, it's it's getting paid for it. I mean, people will use the system even if they have to pay for it. That's part of my penny to post thing. That it actually costs money to post. Yeah, we're gonna. I was gonna talk about that next. So let's yeah, go we're there. Gonna talk about, yeah. Yeah. Let's. Okay, well, why don't we finish on the idea of curation as an occupation, and then we'll move to how people pay. Right. Curation is extremely important, and it's extremely important in machine learning because we have to have curators create the corpora we use for artificial intelligence. So they're going to be in high demand all over the place. Now, if you are a curator and want to curate your own bubble, you realize that every time you post it, and somebody clicks on your bubble, they inherit the whole thing. So it's not something that you really can protect, but if it is well-crafted, I mean, it will spread the... There is no way to protect the good bubble. How's that? <laughs> well, maybe there is. Suppose. Maybe there is. It, it could be done on the outside. I don't know. Uh, but it's. Uh, well, here's, a, here's an extra feature I'm going to suggest to you. Okay. I didn't see in your write-up. Suppose I want to build a proprietary bubble, and the bubble now has a feed. And uh, people can subscribe to the feed that come out of the bubble. They don't, they don't subscribe to the bubble directly. Now, they can uh -huh. add additional filters downstream. They can, they can take the, the filter stream, connect it to their own bubble, and then add other filtering. But the stream itself is a, an artifact of the curated bubble. Oh, I don't want to go there. Uh, it's, it's contrary to my principles in information here. It, it shouldn't be. It shouldn't cost anything to read, and so on. And also, one of the points of the system is that it federates all these other feeds into the system. This is how we bootstrap with it before we have any users. We basically federate Mastodon and Matrix and possibly Twitter if we can into the input feed. And you're basically choosing on all of those. We might include include blogs and Substack and all kinds of other stuff there too. And the information feed is basically going to be very 
fat, if you will. It's going to be a lot of stuff in the feed, and you will basically see within minutes of something appearing in any of these feeds. If it's in your sphere of interest, you will see it in your bubble. Okay. Well, I was going to ask you, think about this idea of yes. curation with an output stream, because it adds a new set of topologies that can, that can emerge. I can see how it violates. Right, right. Yeah. So anyway, now let's move on to the next question. Every venture capitalist always asks, how are you going to make money off of this? And you have a quite interesting and somewhat contrarian take on that. So how are you going to make money off this? Yes. So getting an account is free. Tuning your bubbles and defining your bubbles is free. It costs a penny to post. And the way you do that is you basically you follow some you are imagine that you're basically following the stream and you see an interesting topic and you click on a message and you want to reply to that message, which is what you do by default as you click on something. And you type in a little bit of a message, but the system has warned you several times already that before you can post, you have to have money in your purse. And so when you click the post button, it says, please add money to your purse using one of these credit cards or PayPal or whatnot. And there's a button there that says, that's outrageous. And if you click that, the system pops up a window that says, if your post isn't worth a penny even to you, why would anybody want to read it? Yeah, I love that. As a, that's a great marketing line. And I actually, my initially, I said a post can't, a penny can't possibly be enough. But I went up and looked at the numbers for how many tweets there are. And a right. penny is close. Maybe it's two cents, but it's no more than two cents to mm-hmm. support a system at the scale of Twitter exactly. per, per tweet, which is quite amazing, actually, when you think about it. Yeah. And per Moore's law, you know, that price will only go down over time. So if it's two cents today, it'd be a penny in two years and half a cent in four years. And that's actually quite remarkable. On the other hand, we do know that doing large neural net stuff is not cheap. And that may cause the price to go up. Right. In the early days, it might be five cents, for, for instance, if we're going to have you know, heavy neural net processing. On the other hand, things like vector space lookup is very inexpensive. So to the degree that we can, you know, process something once and then embed it into a high dimensional vector space, the retrieval isn't all that bad. And that's exactly what Bubble City does with a minor modification. We don't use a vector space. Well, it depends on which implementation you go with. But yes, that's exactly what Bubble City does. Yep. So yeah. So a penny to five cents, and I love the marketing hook. Uh, yeah, you pay to post, but if, if if your shit ain't worth five cents, don't deposit it here, right? <laughs> exactly. I mean, we can play plenty of games with this. I have said, for instance, that we can have the the stamps will expire in a year, which guarantees ten dollars a year from every user, whether they post or not. If you have money in your purse, your account will not go away. But if you don't have any money, it goes away if you're not logging for three months, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So the Putting money in your purse basically raises you from the status of a lurker to the status of an author, and those are treated much better by the system. All right, let's move on to another one of the big design dimensions for systems of this sort, and that is whether posters need to be named, real names, or pseudo-anonymous, i.e. one identity per human, but it doesn't have to identify them as a human, or can there be multiple identities per human? And this is where I put on my marketing hat and said, okay, you can have as many accounts as you want. Each one is a nickname. Each one requires a different purse. So if you cannot basically do identity spamming economically because each identity that you create is going to cost you another 10 bucks. Otherwise, you can't post from it. So that's one, one uh, strategy that we have for this. Also, we say that everybody posts by the nickname only. So you basically, it, uh, it, we don't know who the person really is. We might do something like what Twitter has with these various blue markings of some kind. And specifically, we might do what Elon has done about institutional stuff, where basically, if you're working for National Institutes of Health, you can actually have an NIH badge on your thing, which is verified by the system. And so we can do all of those kinds of tricks. But the main point is that once you post it, we have at least a credit card number to you. We don't care who you are, but law enforcement might. And if they come and start hooking us, us for who posted that thing, we can hand them a credit card, and that's as far as we can go. And by the way, we probably will outsource that to some other entities. Login, login, and credit cards are are painful. 
Yeah, there's lots of people that do that for a living. Now, personally, I would very much like to be able to filter on the strength of people's identities. I would like to be able to create a bubble, for instance, that says real verified real name only, double blue check or something, and use that. That never occurred to me, but that is an excellent idea. We'll put it in. We'll put it in. Okay, yeah, because that, uh, that, you know, I can see the argument for allowing the anonymous, but I can also see arguments for wanting to be able to create bubbles to keep all those people out. You know, having uh-huh. been some, I've been involved in the creation of things like social media for, scary to think about it, 41 years now. And I will say, as a general rule, non-real name content is worse than real name content. Not always the case, but it's the way to bet. Right. It comes down to, I mean, unless, if you're behaving, if you're not doing illegal stuff, nobody will ever want to know who you are. Nobody can ever find out who you are because it takes a sub-queen not to get me. I think that's a fair, fair, fair way of doing this. Okay. Now, another issue that we all know, and I've written about this a little bit, I call the idea of viscosity. Depending on how one defines a bubble, one could have far more messages than one would actually care to read. Right. And you have a concept called pacer. Ah, yes. How would you deal with the problem of, you know, let's suppose I put up a bubble for Donald Trump. You know, you'd get ah. so much crapola coming into that. How would pacer work to modulate that? Well, first off is that basically pacer is supposed to be used at things like the popular stream. And it turns Bubble City into like a television set where you're basically passively sitting, watching stuff flow by on the screen. And when you see something interesting, then you click on it and now you're interacting. But up till then, you can just sit there um, and watch the stream. And the point is that all social media will throw away messages because if you have 2,000 friends on Facebook, you can't read what they post in a day, in a week. So every message system filters away stuff that it for some reason, things you shouldn't see. And in if you look at a very strong stream, a fat stream like a Trump stream or even a popular stream, you don't want to see everything. You want to see it sampled. And so you turn down the volume control. And volume control is basically a speed dial. And it, you set it to, okay, starts out maybe one message per five seconds, and you can go up to one message per second or something like that. But you basically set it to what you can constantly read on the screen, and then you sit back. And you can, of course, adjust it if it's too fast or slow. You think there are people that actually do that? It seems like a bizarre thing to do to sit there and watch tweets come in in real time. I mean, I can't imagine a more ridiculous way to spend one's time. Suppose they're all about Manchester United. I'm not that interested in it, but maybe some people are. <laughs> no, whatever. I mean, if, you, if, you're, if you're basically interested in epistemology and whatever, you create a bubble for epistemology and there may be way too, way too much to watch there. So, but you can turn on the, the, the speed, speed dial is one way to sample statistically rather than refining the bubbles to something you can handle. Yeah. And so the, as I understood it, your pacer literally just picks them at random. Is that right? It can pick at random. To be honest, we could cheat and we could use some popular uh, ratings there too. But I think we will uh, probably just pick at random. It's more honest. Speaking of honesty, are you going to talk about the... Clickbait problem? Yeah, let's talk about it. So clickbait is basically, it's, it's a nuisance. It's everywhere. And it's bait and switch, basically. And what we want to do is we want don't, we will have subjects lines on the messages. But you don't see them in the, in the scrolling bubble view. You only see summaries that the AIs have generated. These are honest summaries of the content. And so you're guaranteed pretty much that if you click on a message, it's going to be what the, what the summary said it was about. And uh, that gives you a level of comfort that you can basically just ignore stuff people usually do with these messages we don't want to read. You mean we won't see TV stars from the 1970s, what they look like today, right? Right. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's it's, it's bait. Yeah. Because the AI will recognize it as such. Yeah, and we'll, uh, or we'll summarize it into plain, bland English. And if you want to hit click on it, go right ahead. But, of course, obviously on social media today, because people are able to you know, track the click-through rate on every title, and they're testing dozens or hundreds of titles to find the ones that, that are very strongest at pushing your buttons, right? And so this is a good way to, to break that down. And you don't have advertising directly. However, people want to 
for a penny, they can post an ad if they're so inclined, right? Correct. And if they post an ad for Viagra, they will be heard for everybody who wants to see ads for Viagra and pretty much nobody else. Yeah, maybe some. And smart people might say, I only, only want to look at Viagra if it's less than a dollar a pill, right? So maybe, <laughs> there's some, maybe there's some metadata, right, that has pricing information in it, in which case then you could have smart and ethical advertising that people can parametrically filter their ads on metadata. That's the walking in the reductionist direction, the thing to say is that the AI will recognize it as whatever it is. Gotcha, gotcha. All right. Let's see what else we got here. Okay, playlists. We've talked about swiping left and swiping right, following popular, follow trusted streams. So, the, okay, let's talk a little bit about that. You can follow, you describe as trusted streams. What are those? Reuters, for instance. I mean, <laughs> who decides? Who decides what's a trusted stream? Oh, they are named. You could you could follow Reuters by name. It's, it's okay. something you can have a bubble for. Uh, okay. Oh yeah, but they could also they could also follow Jim Rutt by name, right? Is there? They could. Yes. Does Reuters have any different standing in the system than I do? No. Nope. No people who are uh, subscribing to it know what they're getting in both cases. Okay, so essentially all that that is is a bubble with one or more named users as its input stream. Right. It, it gets, it, it, in some sense, it gets closer to what you were suggesting earlier with a, with a Jim Rod channel coming into the system. But we are we haven't we haven't even discussed or thought about making that something that uh, that end users could use. So basically, it would be system level access to whatever streams that the system can subscribe to would become available, and they would possibly be available as name streams. Okay, cool. I'm going to go out beyond your paper now a little bit, because you, as we've been talking about it, and as I extracted it from the paper, it seems principally around text messages of various sorts. Do you remember a product from a long time ago called Google Wave? Yeah, maybe a little bit. I mean, it's, it's confusing. They have so many social media attempts, and I don't know which one's which anymore. Yeah, yeah Wave was interesting, because you could create these containers that included messages, but the cool part about it, they also included artifacts. So you could actually build up documents, multiple person edited documents. You could upload videos to them. And so this, these were smaller than bubbles, but they were kind of like molecules, addressable molecules that people could subscribe to. And so let's say you're talking about some very specific scientific domain. People could upload links, they yes. could upload papers, they could upload videos, they could upload data sets even. Can you imagine moving the content of bubbles from just messages to artifacts or links? That becomes basically an implementation level problem at some point. But I should mention that Google Wave, now that I think about it, I recognize it at the time as being somewhat Bubble City-like because they had these per-topic bubbles, if you will. And it could be that they got this idea from reading my patents, which they owned. So, And I went down that rabbit hole today because I remembered it when I was reading the paper. I said, ah, Google Wave. This is a bit like Google Wave. And then, of course, I I remember Google Wave came out and then disappeared. And I wondered, whatever happened to it? Turns out Google Wave was turned into an Apache open source project. Uh It still exists, though apparently it never got much in the way of interest. There's been one or two forks, and there are kind of weak projects that are forks of Wave that still exist. but who knows? Might be looked. It might be worth looking at it as a way to bootstrap the development of your system. It could well be. On the other hand, development systems like this are getting significantly simpler with things like ChatGPT programming for you. So I think I can implement this with a very small team and a lot of AI help. Yeah, it's probably right. You know, it, it is interesting. I'm one of those people who will work on software for two or three weeks or four weeks or five weeks, and then I won't touch programming for a year. And uh-huh. I just I just recently went back to doing some programming. I built a GPT-powered chatbot for the transcripts of my podcasts, actually. And oh my God, does ChatGPT help a, a programmer who doesn't program every day? Uh-huh. It's amazing. I mean, you can define even quite intricate little Python functions and it just writes them for you. Uh, it'll create the template for like a Flask template for a, you uh-huh. know, a simple website. Just 
10 words, press the button, it does it, it's perfect. So yeah, it's, it's quite, rem- anyone who's still Googling to try to find out programming tips, don't do that. ChatGPT is, is miles ahead on helping you be a more productive programmer, especially if you're someone like myself who isn't programming every day and whose fingers forget. You know, they, My fingers forget Python syntax after six months or whatever, and then I go back to it. ChatGPT has really helped me be way more productive this time than I think I've ever been in my life, frankly. So I think that's a very good point, that the cost of developing software has just suddenly made a discontinuous drop down. Correct. Yes. It turns out that uh, basically junior programming skills are going to be less important going forward. But if you are a systems designer at a high level of systems architect, you can do a lot more by yourself than you used to be able to. Yeah, I have tested GPT on big things. And, uh-huh. you know. Anything over 100, 200 lines of code, it kind of loses itself and just doesn't uh, doesn't do it. But of course, that will improve. And so the skill today is more like a systems analyst skill. You decompose the problem into modules, and then you describe the exactly. modules. And, and ChatGPT is great at writing a 30-line function, for instance, almost infallible. Yeah, and you don't have to look up the API specification if you're doing something on the cloud because it, has, it knows those to a large extent on Exactly. That's the thing I've already found. Even a fairly obscure packages, it, it knows the APIs, which is quite impressive. And that will only get better. You know, no doubt there'll be products that are specialized for code, for instance, that'll, that are even will be better. The current DaVinci 3 is pretty damn good, but I expect there'll be better ones in the future. But they don't have to be much better. They don't have to be any better than they are today to be able to write pretty damn good 30-line functions in Python, I can tell you exactly. that. Exactly. Yep, yep. Yeah, which is quite remarkable. All right. So I think we've done a pretty, anything else that we have that we didn't cover with respect to the aspects of the system? I would like to at least touch upon the AI component. What you have been following in this interview is basically version 2.0. And I have a new version 3.0 that is much heavier on the AI component in the system. Bubble City 2.0 document was written before ChatGPT came out, okay? So it's six months old. And after ChatGPT came out, I had to redo the entire Bubble City document to basically retarget it for AI inclusion as a significant part of the system. And at the very core of the system is this message routing algorithm that routes things to the users that have subscribed to them. And there's three ways to do this. And the first one is to use a search engine in reverse, which is what I put in the patents for Google. The second one is to use something like the GPT APIs to classify the messages according to the end users. And that might be expensive. I mean, a web search is like a, a, something like two, pence, two cents and the chat GPT used to be 35 cents and now it's cheaper. It's about two cents now. And that was okay. for a, and that's for a very large context, about a yeah, yeah. 4,000 token context. My uh, little chatbot project uses big context as its trick. Exactly. And then this, this is going to continue to get cheaper. But there might still be an economic incentive to find simpler algorithms. And I have one that I have created, which is basically a competitor to GPT library, which is called Organic Learning and Understanding Machine 1. And they are described at my website in Chapters 8 and 9. And if you go down the route of using... Uh, understanding machine one instead of using GPT as the router, you can do it much, much cheaper because you own the entire entire version of the AI, which is, comes from the organic learning stuff. Now, have you actually built that model? I have built, uh, yes, I have. The understanding machine one is available as a cloud service. And you can, if you go to chapter nine, it describes the API and it uh, gives you a link to GitHub to download some test code in Python and you can run that. And the organic learner itself, and I've written 23 of them over the past 20 years since 2001, and two of them work, and that's version 21 and 23, and 23 is currently the one that created the understanding that's in Understanding Machine 1. And this, the, the cool thing about my organic learning system is that it is extremely effective, efficient, because today to train up a chat GPT like AI, you would pay hundreds of thousands to millions of dollars in, in training fees, in, in compute costs and, and electricity. And my system can learn a significant amount of any language on the planet 
in five minutes running on the laptop without using the GPU. And that's pretty significant. So I basically intend to go for learning every language on the planet because it's so easy, learning medical English, medical Japanese, social media Finnish, etc., and create a system for people to use those competences to classify messages and in the future to create chat GPT-like interactions, which is what I'm working on right now. Yeah, that's very cool. Now, for the actual content attractor to the bubble, you don't actually need a large language model. All you really need is a semantic space embedding calculator. Correct. And and so there's, like I said, that's what search engines are. And that's also in a very different way what my understanding machine does. So it is, it is a pure classifier, but it is much more competent than classifiers of old because it is based on my machine learning technologies. And of course, there's other, some other interesting things one could do. For instance, somebody I know just recently combined just a very simplistic two-dimensional space projection clustering algorithm mm-hmm. on 100 million tweets, right. then took the centroid of the clusters and searched out for the tweets, and then ran them through GPT to summarize. And it produced an amazing topic map from 100 million tweets. So there's an example of uh, essentially finding synthetic topics or synthetic bubbles mm-hmm. in an automated fashion. Yes, I mean, bubbles such as such exist all over the place. They're not just called that. So in some sense, all of this bubble technology is doable with, uh, with almost 20th century technology. But there's no reason not to do it with at least a decent understanding machine or even a GPT-like interface because it would be much better. I mean, one of the things I'm talking about is that messages with hidden intent where, for instance, they contain discussion of some current event, but they, under the... Uh, covers, they are basically doing some persuasion of some kind. And then AI could detect that and basically flag the messages being slightly persuasive in this political direction. And you could see those things already, maybe as colors on the on the, as the stream flowing by on your screen, you can see basically, for instance, what kind of messages you are getting in the gross. Got it. Well, this is extraordinarily interesting. And as I said, I, I'm talking to people almost every day about things in this space, uh, using our new technologies to help information essentially organize itself to our preferences yes, rather than to the preferences of the Facebooks and the Twitters and heaven forbid, Instagrams of the world. Yeah. So wh- when are we going to see something like this? Are you actively working on this project? Are you putting a team together? Where does this thing stand? Well, I have fractions of teams together, but like I said, this can be probably this can probably be done by I don't know four person team in four months or something like that because it's very much standard application. You have you have the federating step, you have a database like MongoDB, you have the understanding machine or the API to GPT, and then you have a user interface, and that's basically not much work. And I need a little bit of money to do this, and I haven't. I'm very poor at raising funds, so that's what currently is holding me back. But uh, yeah, so anybody out there interested? I'm, certain, I'm actually working. I actually working yeah, on uh, it. Anybody out there in Jim Rutt Show land who would like to help Monica, you know, get a hold of her, help her raise some money, and uh, realize the dream? Because as she says, at least the uh, you know a functioning prototype is not that expensive to build yes. today. Qu- quite remarkably, now scaling it up is another matter, and the pressurizing it to get to a an actual network effect critical mass will turn out to be the hardest uh-huh. part. And that's a well, different set of skills as well. So anyway, I'd like to really thank Monica Anderson for an extraordinarily interesting walk into her vision of Bubble City, a information system of the future. Thank you. This was fun. It really was. Audio production and editing by Andrew Blevins Productions. Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com.